studying the book of Hebrews. We only have a few verses left in uh, chapter 13. So we are in chapter 13 and verse 17. We should finish Hebrews in the next few weeks. And then we'll begin studying verse by verse through the book of 2 Corinthians. So if any of you like to study ahead, which I know a lot of people do, get whatever commentaries you like. All right? And uh, we'll, if you want to begin to prepare, study Second Corinthians. Okay, this morning we are on verse 17. Uh, if some of you haven't been here, we've been studying Hebrews for years, and we're just about done. The issue in Hebrews were, was that some of the uh, people that were Jewish Christians were being tempted to go back to the old the temple sacrifices to the high priest that they had in Judaism, to the law, and all of that. And the reason for the temptation, according to Hebrews, was a lack of faith. Because it says in Hebrews that faith is the evidence of things not seen. And one of the themes in the book of Hebrews is that we have a better high priest, better promises, better sacrifice, and so on. Now, the thing that is an issue was that all of our all of these things that we have that are better are unseen. Jesus is in heaven, we don't see him. The blood was shed once for all. We can't see that like they could go to the temple while they still had the sacrifices and they could see the blood being shed. Okay? Well there's there's their sound guy, maybe he's going to help us. <laughs> One of their guys. Anyhow, um, so the sacrifice is unseen because it will happen once for all. The uh, high priest is unseen because he is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And we don't have the physical properties. You can't go see the temple. You can't go see all the pomp and circumstance and what have you. All of the most important things are unseen. But... The Bible says faith is the evidence of things not seen. So we have to believe in Christ whom we do not see. And so Hebrews was a, uh, contains five warnings against apostasy and an encouragement to press on and to follow the examples of people of faith under the Old Covenant. And so Hebrews 11 gives a list of people who believe God and obeyed God like Abraham and so on in Noah and the people in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, verse 17 indicates to us that evidently one thing they did have in their fellowship was good leadership. And so in some cases in the New Testament, the leadership was the problem. For example, in the epistles to Timothy, it seems from the context that the elders were some of the people that were leading people astray in Timothy. But here in the book of Hebrews, evidently that wasn't the case because here's what it says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would, not, for this would be unprofitable for you. So evidently they did have good leaders who were watching over their souls for their well-being. So, inasmuch as God has ordained that there would be leaders, the key leaders that we see described in the New Testament in the local church, the leaders are elders. And I've talked about that before. And Paul, for example, dressed the elders at Ephesus. And Timothy talks about what elders should be like, 1 Timothy 3. Titus chapter 1 talks about elders and what their role is and what's important to them. Um, I was going to look back at verse 7. Hebrews 13.7, you want to just turn back to that. It says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their contact, imitate their faith. So again, preachers of the Word of God had come to the, these Christians and they had preached the Word of God and they had exemplified the kind of faith that God is pleased with. 
And they also were obedient because it says here, the uh, consider the result of their conduct. So they lived lives that would be exemplary to the Christians. They taught the truth. And so they did have a history of good leadership in this congregation. So given that context, it says obey your leaders. Now there are some people who take this as a carte blanche command and uh, there was a really insidious teaching that was uh, foisted upon the body of Christ in the 1970s by a man named Bill Gothard. And Bill Gothard taught this um, chain of command doctrine. All right, And what, what he was saying is that this is a carte blanche. In other words, the leaders have a, a signed check that they can fill out. That's what I mean by that. And they can teach or do or say anything they, they see fit, whether it's godly or not. And we're obligated to obey them, no matter what. And Gothard even went so far as to say if you obey, if you obey, uh, blindly obey authorities, that God will protect you from error that, because he's so pleased with you, your blind obedience to authorities, whoever they may be, uh, whether they're godly or ungodly. And he extended that in this whole chain of command. Now, there's a big problem with that, and that number one problem with it is there's no chain of command teaching in the New Testament. Because the Bible teaches the priesthood of every believer. And this idea that God talks to the Pope and the Pope talks to the Cardinal and the Cardinal talks to the Bishop and the Bishop talks to the priest. I don't know how many layers they have in Rome. But you have this pyramid. Okay, so there's one guy at the top and then his decrees work their way down. And if you're the person in the pew, you have zero authority. You only have the obligation to do whatever you're told, whether it's wicked or good. That's what the chain of command teaching is. That is entirely unbiblical. And uh, we're publishing an article uh, next this week or next, depending on how we can get our act together to get it mailed out. It's all done. And there's two articles in there. One that I wrote called that I kind of robbed uh, uh, Ryan's title. It's called. Um, the prophetic calling of every believer. And then Keith Gentoff has one on prophecy. And we're arguing, uh, based on the teachings in 1 Corinthians 14 and elsewhere, that every believer can prophesy. And that prophecy is bringing out valid implications and applications of Scripture. And in my article, I researched this uh, using this new logo software <laughs> that uh, Brian and I use. And I found what Luther taught about this, what Calvin taught about it, what Matthew Henry taught about it, what Barnes taught about it. And universally, they taught the same thing, which is the position that I'm holding. And Luther says, based on 1 Corinthians 14.31, you may all prophesy, Luther taught that any lowly believer that has the truth of the Scripture can prophesy to the Pope and tell him to be silent. <laughs> if, if indeed the Pope doesn't have the Scripture. Now, if the Pope told you the truth from Scripture, then his words are authoritative. And we ought to listen to him. But if the Pope teaches you a lie that's not biblical, any believer has more authority than that because the authority isn't derived from offices. The authority is derived from the Scripture. And when you have the priesthood of every believer and the authority of Scripture, the two bedrock foundations of the Reformation, then any single believer without any obvious status as far as church hierarchy can fully prophesy authoritatively because of the Scriptures and making implications and applications. Yes, Brian. Oh, hold on a second. We're going to back to this here. Will you, uh, the rendering an account, is that to God? Or could you expound on that? Okay. Giving, it says, let's go back to, uh, okay, let me get to that. But I'm saying this when it says obey your leaders. Um, in the context, look in Hebrews 13, 7, 
they had godly leaders that were teaching them the truth. And inasmuch as you have godly leaders that are teaching the truth of Scripture, you should obey those leaders. Alright? Because, why? Because they're speaking with the authority of God. Not because of their position, but because they're doing so in a godly way from Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay, so now it says, Submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls of those who will give account. And I'm going to look again at Acts 20. It seems like we're always back in Acts 20. But Acts 20 talks about that. Paul talks about that he had taught repentance toward God and faith, uh, repentance and faith throughout Ephesus, and that he had declared unto them the whole counsel of God. Therefore, he said, I'm innocent from the blood of all men. And what that means is, those invested with the Word of God, and that would be every believer, not just the leaders, but particularly teachers, because it says they will incur stricter judgment, but those given the Word of God and given the responsibility to teach are going to give an account to God for what they taught. Okay? Because should I speak in the name of God, which is what prophesying is, and speak to you that which is not from God and not true and false, I would be seriously harming your soul because... There's always the possibility, in fact, the likelihood that when someone is invested with responsibility, like an elder in a local church, and are seen as one who's been trained in the Word, of course, people are going to, if they don't know any better, assume that what you say is really from God. And if I were to falsely prophesy to you, and you were to believe it is from God, that would harm your soul. Because the fact is, error and falsehood is always harmful, right? Now, um, there's a lot of uh, sneaky stuff going on to try out there to try to get away from this. I was I spent, we just got back from vacation, so if I'm a little rusty, it's because I've been focusing on fish. <laughs> I'm telling you, if we were fishing right now, I'd be right on top of my game. <laughs> but I did study the Scripture while I was gone. I, what I did, I took a book with me uh, for research on the emergent church, and I took one of the theological expositions by a guy named Grenz called uh, something about postmodern theology. And I was reading that while I was on vacation. And it was so grievous. It was so grievous. Their claim is that the authorial intent, in other words, the, the meaning in, that was written by the Holy Spirit-inspired authors is inaccessible. We don't know what that is. You can't know what Paul meant. You can't know what John meant. All we have is the text, and the text has a life of its own. And the Holy Spirit speaks through the text, but what he speaks isn't controlled by the text. This is the postmodern theology I was reading. And, and, and he said, they say that the community, so any community, they, there's no way to judge a good community or a bad community. You just have communities in the emergent church. So whatever your little group, we get together and we get the Bible and the text has a life of its own. We don't have to try to find out what Paul meant because we can't know that. All we have is this text and we sort of, in, we sort of read it and experience it and then the Spirit gives us the meaning. So in a lot of ways, it would be like a hermeneutic that says the reader determines the meaning. And so as long as your community agrees on the meaning, this is what this guy was writing in his book. Okay, And I've been taking notes on every page of this book, and I'm going to use this as research for a book that I'm going to write to refute this kind of thinking. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, in a sense, they, can say, they say you could all prophesy, but there's no control of what's true and false. And what they're saying is that you cannot know. It's not possible in the postmodern thinking to know if your theology is true. It's true and false are not valid categories. There is only what works for us in our community that becomes our private truth and then what somebody else has. So you can't judge prophecy. So this, when you get the article of the critical issues that's coming out in a week or two, there's a whole section, I also talk about judging prophecy in the article. 
And why is it, does it say in the New Testament, every time it talks about prophecy, it's followed by discernment or judging? Now, it said you may prophesy one by one and let the others judge. How do you judge prophecy? Because you have the same Bible open, all right? And I'm telling you what I think Hebrews 13, 17 means based on the grammatical historical method. And you have objective tools to do the same thing. You're not dependent on what I tell you this means. And anybody in this uh, class or in this assembly can bring out valid implications and applications of Scripture and bring insight or correction should I prophesy falsely. Now, if that process is happening in the local church, let me just reiterate how I conceive of this, and I believe it's biblical, is that the elders are responsible to labor in word and doctrine, according to Timothy. The elders are responsible to teach. The elders need to make sure they do this, the work of, of, uh, of the ministry in such a way as to watch over the souls of the flock as people who will give account and who are, above all, concerned for the spiritual well-being of the flock. All right. Now, given that role and given the priesthood of every believer, Every believer also has the right and responsibility to judge what's being said. And to test it by the Scripture, to be Bereans, and help us together explore our mutual salvation and our faith. That's how I envision it in the New Testament. There isn't this hierarchy where this guy speaks for God and everybody else has to listen to it. All right? So... Um, in that context, I'm saying that, then we can do this. this is, then this is not abusive anymore. Then, then there's liberty. Then there's freedom. And then there, there's a way of correcting error without just having to follow it blindly. It says, given that, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they watch over your souls as those who will give account. So they had leaders who really cared about that. And it's very important that leaders have the right motives. All right? It's very important that pastors and elders or whatever sort of scheme of leadership a local congregation has is that, that, that this is really true, that they really care about giving account. There's no way that, that it's ever valid for a pastor to get in a pulpit and say, here's what I believe, blah, 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 and somebody come up and say, no, here, pastor, the Scripture says this, and I don't think you can validate what you just said from the Scripture. I'm the pastor, don't question me. That is to be, as a pastor, in rebellion against God. And as denying the flock their God-given responsibility to judge prophecy. Every time we get in that pulpit, we're prophesying by the definitions. And I'm going to prove that that's how the Reformation understood it. Calvin said that. Luther said that. In fact, almost everybody had that position until the 20th century. In the 20th century with the, uh, uh, the Pentecostal and other holiness movements, there came a different idea about what prophecy was. Prophecy be, be, uh, began to be believed to either to be ecstatic utterances or you know, revelations or words from God beyond the Scripture. And so then you had an interesting thing. And when I did this historical study about prophecy for my article, that suddenly, when the definition changed on one hand, the definition changed on the other. So, some of the people that were against prophecy accepted the definition that it was some new word from God beyond what could be gleaned from Scripture, and then said it ceased. In other words, they say, yeah, okay, we'll agree with you that that's what prophecy is, but we say it ceased in 100 A.D. And so... uh, and I, when I did my historical analysis, I never found that, that either of those positions till the 20th century. But before that, it was believed that prophecy was to speak forth from God's word, authoritative words. That literally, literally you could say, thus saith the Lord. The gospel is a thus saith the Lord. The gospel is prophesying. Because if we declare to somebody, Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the ju- unjust, uh, in order to bring us to God, you are a sinner, and you're in uh, wrong standing with God, but if you repent and believe the gospel, in fact, you must repent and believe the gospel, you must obey the gospel, 
If you do so, the terms are that God will forgive your sins and you'll be cleansed and made given the gift of eternal life by God's grace. That is prophesying because we're saying to the sinner, thus saith the Lord. And we're doing so validly with the full authority of God and every single believer has that prophetic calling to do that. Does that make sense? Okay. And because we know that is a valid implication. Why? What's an implication? Let's just use the gospel as an illustration of an implication. The Bible says all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? All, all of sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, right? So an implication is that everyone is spiritually dead and facing eternity in hell. Is that a valid implication? That's just logic, okay? If you're a person, it applies to you, whoever you may be. So therefore, to say that is to preach or prophesy validly. Okay? And I give an example in my article of John MacArthur prophesying and of Luther prophesying. When I did a sermon, I remember I quoted Luther saying, Luther says, Thus saith the Lord, and then he rebuked the monastics as being in sin by taking oaths that God had not told him to take. Uh, Scott? Okay, over here. Uh, hold on. Wait for the mic. I've got a verse I think will fit right into what you're talking about. But in First uh, Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, it says, For this cause I have sent you Timothy, uh, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Right. There's going to be continuity to the message. Right. Timothy will bring the authority of the inspired word to the churches. Now, this is a very... I'm saying we all have this responsibility as believers. The prophetic calling of every believer. This is a very sacred and weighty responsibility. And the thing that scares me the most about what's going on in the church today is people don't see it as weighty at all. This book that I hear, let me tell you some of the evasions from, from the authority of Scripture. This book that I was reading while I was on vacation about postmodern theology, the claim is nobody could know the truth. Have you ever heard somebody say, nobody has all the truth? Have you heard that? Have you heard somebody say, well, you probably believe things, some things that you believe aren't true? Whoever you may be. Have you heard that? And you'd have to say, can I, somebody would ask me, Bob, is everything that you believe now for sure absolutely true? No, I can't say that. I'm just a finite human. I probably believe some things that are air. And they say, see? So nobody has all the truth. So, so what's the implication? They say, therefore, why try? Why judge prophecy? Why try to find the truth? Why correct somebody else's error? And so it, it, the whole procedure becomes what I call the little engine that couldn't. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't know. I can't understand. So we'll just have a mystical experience and don't even try. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so here's what I how I would respond to that. See, here's what I believe. Because I'm a human, there's things I believe that aren't true. But I believe that if I submit myself to the authority of Scripture within the body of Christ, and that we have this process of the authority of Scripture, the priesthood of every believer, you all may prophesy, and all prophecy is judged, and together as we search out the implications of the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, that those errors that I believe will get corrected. <laughs> okay? And that, and that by God's grace, I will understand the truth better, and that some things I thought were true, I'll find to be false, but I'm committed to that process. Not just throw up our hands in despair and say, nobody can know anything, so we'll just have incense and sounds and symbols and icons and have a mystical experience, and nobody can know anything. So we gave up. Basically, it's a forbidding prophecy. And, 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 uh, and uh, quenching the Holy Spirit. Okay? 
Now, given that definition, here's what I'm saying this verse means. Obey your leaders. Why? Because they are speaking the truth of the Word of God to you. And it's not their authority, it's God's authority. And should they teach falsehood, all prophecy must be judged. Therefore, do so. At any time, somebody brings a scripture and goes to the pastor and says, here's what it says, and I think that you're teaching error, the pastor has to seriously consider that. Now, if if we can't agree one-on-one on this, we have elders, and elders have to decide. They have to search the Scripture and decide what the truth is and make a decision what we're going to believe. And based on the Scripture, not based on anything else. Does that that make sense? So it's not blind obedience to church authorities. It's it's obedience of one and all to the Word of God. But there are people that have a special responsibility of laboring in the Word and doctrine. And it is labor. The word for labor in the Greek there in Timothy is hard. It's where we get our word copious. Hard, copious work. And if you're not working hard, if it's not really hard work to teach, you're probably not doing a very good job because you're not trying very hard. Submit to them for they keep watch over your souls. In what sense? Uh, Lane calls this eschatological vigilance. What do we mean by that? We do believe in future judgment. Right? We do believe that every one of us will have to give account to God. We'll give account for how we raised our children. We'll give account for how we taught. We'll give account for how we live. And we'll give an account for what we teach. And so this eschatological vigilance means that we want to hear when the Lord returns, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. So that would be important to us. And to watch over people's souls. What is it? How do we watch over somebody's soul? What do you think? Has anybody got an idea? What would? Yes, uh, Bill. Okay, teaching the word of God, being being vigilant for the well-being of the flock. You know, there's a lot of temptation to have bad motives. Did you know that? We all face it. And it's bad motives are always knocking at the door. It's just just below the surface. Oh, oh, we we have to be vigilant about our motives. And pastors, in particular, are certainly we we are tempted to have bad motives. What would be some bad motives? Well, you could be motivated by money. I think even bigger than that. I think the biggest temptation that pastors face. Now, some of them fall for money, but. Not, I don't think that's the primary. At least not to start with. Yes, it's the accolades of man. We want to be well spoken of. Um, if you're really motivated for money, uh, I seriously, uh, I would not suggest the ministry is a good avenue. You know? <laughs> it's the <Sure>. likely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and the, the likelihood of getting rich by uh, is, is not the very high unless you do things very unethically. Now, I, but we are, all of us are, want to be well thought of in our arena. If you're a teacher, you certainly want to be well thought of as a teacher. And it's not always necessarily bad, but there's things that could become bad motives. And so, within the realm of pastors, there's sort of a scorekeeping system. And it's not a good scorekeeping system. It's how many people come to your church, how many people buy your books, how many people want to listen to you, uh, you know, so on and so forth. And all of that is just a bad temptation that we need to resist. And nobody is free from bad motives totally. But we've, the more we depend on the Lord, the more those things get crucified and the more we get motivated the way God wants us to. So elders, number one responsibility is to watch over the souls. Notice it says watch over the souls. Now we do believe in taking care of people physically, visiting the widows and caring for people and their physical needs. 
But that is not nearly as important as watching over somebody's soul. Why? Because what did Jesus say? It's better to go through this life lame, if your hand offends you, cut it off, than to enter into eternity in a bad situation, right? And so the eternal is more important than the temporal, not that the temporal is unimportant, but it's less important. So the number one responsibility of elders in a local church is to care for the souls of the flock. And that is to help people with sanctification, help them understand uh, their responsibilities as parents or workers or fellow Christians, that, that throughout life we would lead a life that would speak of the work of God's grace changing us. So we need to look after the well-being of the souls of the flock as those who will give an account. Now, I was going to, I told you about Acts 20. You know what? Oh, I got my little baby Bible. Some days I can actually read from this. I know it. Lois is not fair. Well, I noticed the last time she was having trouble with her, so. I'm not the It's the lighting. Mine are these new glasses. They're great. They're nice looking glasses. I just can't see out of them. <laughs> so these are my Sunday only glasses. Paul said this. Acts 20 and... Verse um, 20. Acts 20 and verse 20. Let's turn to that. And this, I think this is so exemplary because Paul is talking to elders and he's setting his apostolic example for them, showing what he did as an example for what they ought to do. And in this, really, Paul had spent three years in Ephesus. Ephesus became a really key place in the early church. It's an amazing church in some ways. Ephesus, the church there, always had amazing... First of all, Paul spent three years. All right? Timothy was in Ephesus. And then according to the church tradition, John the Apostle was in Ephesus before he was banished to Patmos. Okay? So uh, the church at Ephesus had had the top apostolic leadership of any church in existence in Asia in, in, the, in the very first century. But it's kind of in, interesting in Revelation. It says you've left your first love. So it shows that good leadership itself, Paul, Timothy, and John, it still takes the people trusting the Lord. Okay, so here's the church in Ephesus, Acts 20, verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. All right? He said, I did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable. Now, what would be profitable is the true words of God. Now, the true words of God are not popular. The true words of God aren't going to gather the biggest crowd. Some of the people in, in history had taught the true words of God had nobody that listened to them. I think Jeremiah is an amazing example. How many followers did Jeremiah have? Basically none. Yeah. How about, how about Noah? He preached for a long time. He's called a preacher of righteousness. How many followers did Noah have? He has family members. They were just, maybe they felt sorry for him. <laughs> God, well, God preserved them with Noah. But really, the fact, they found grace. But the fact is, he said, I didn't shrink from declaring anything profitable. It is tempting to shrink from declaring certain things that are profitable because it is not fun to be rejected. It's not a pleasant experience to have people dislike what you're saying. But we should get used to it because the gospel is offensive. right? So then he said... Um, teaching you publicly and from house to house. So he publicly proclaimed the gospel and he went house to house and taught the truths of God. So notice his message in verse 21, Acts 20, 21. Solemnly testifying 
to both Jews and Greeks of what? Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that, there's kind of a counter movement going on in evangelicalism led by a few individuals like John MacArthur and um, Ray Comfort and Todd Friel, a few people like that. And what's that? Well, yeah, that we're, that, that we're saying, and I'm joining that chorus and saying that when we preach the gospel, the gospel, the universal call is to repent and believe. All right. And I've gotten some nasty emails from these no lordship people that say no repentance has no place in the gospel. Repentance is for Christians after they're saved if they want to live a better life. But there's no... It's amazing that they teach that because Paul went publicly preaching repentance. Notice what he said. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, that was gospel. You agree, Ryan? Amen. And so we are saying that the gospel has been compromised in America for the last 50 to 100 years because we've changed the terms. And we've made, you know, check a little card or... Uh, that was funny on the radio, Brian, um, when uh, we were doing that series on my book. And we were talking about how people get converted in some secret churches and they sign, and they check this little card in the back saying, I want to be a Christian. And then Brian asked me, he says, well, what happens when they turn the card in? Does it go into a little box and God picks them up? <laughs> no, actually, they, they, they go to the Christian Processing Center. <laughs> yes. Okay, here. Here comes the mic. Oh, that's right. We didn't have to do this last week. We yeah, because it was in my briefcase over at the office. You didn't have it. Um, I think it's helpful to think of repentance and faith as two sides of the same coin. Because repentance is turning from your sin. And faith is turning to Jesus. If you're turning to Jesus, if you're having faith, you're turning from something. So you're turning from your life of sin, your life of wretchedness, your life of trusting self, to trusting Jesus. So if faith and repentance are really two sides of the same coin because just speaking of turning to Jesus, it's, it's half the story because repentance is turning from trusting self. Right. So it's not anything really that radical. Uh, as far as looking at the scriptures, it's very, these two things, faith and repentance, are seen really as, as two sides of the, the same act of conversion. Right. Absolutely. In fact, a lot of times when I preach the gospel during my sermon, I will explain that. That the issue of trust is important. It's part of faith. And by nature, we trust self, we trust man, we trust money, we trust religion, we trust good works. There's something we're trusting. And ultimately, that's idolatry. To give ultimacy to something that's less than God himself is idolatry. So repentance is... To, it's like it says, uh, Paul said to, uh, I think the Thessalonians, you turned from dead idols to serve the living God. Turn and serve. Turn from dead idols. Whatever it was that we were trusting, we turn from, and we come to God on his turn by putting faith in Jesus Christ who died for sins once for all. So Paul said that he had diligently gone out into the public sphere and house to house and taught Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't know how somebody could say that's inappropriate or unnecessary, but yet there are those that do. Now, let's go on in Acts 20. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying... That bonds and afflictions await me. Remember Agabus in, in his prophecy? Okay. Um, verse 24. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Now notice 
the synonymous parallelism. Earlier he said he, he had testified publicly, and what he taught was repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, reiterating the same idea, he calls it the gospel of the grace of God. So repentance and faith is the gospel of grace. All right? It's the same message. It's not two different ones. It's not the gospel of grace for salvation and, and then repentance for a deeper life. It's the gospel of grace. So, no, and notice also the phrase, I do not consider my life as dear to myself. Now, the one thing that's most dear to all of us is our life. Okay? And, well, let's remember the old Jack Benny joke? He always, was. Well, you're not old enough. You're all young. You, you didn't watch Jack Benny when you were a kid, but I was old. Jack Benny, yeah. Now, his, his joke was always how stingy he was and how, how he, you know, he wouldn't part from his money. Well, he, would, he did a little skit once where this robber comes up and points a gun at him and says, your money or your life? And he, and he sits there and says, nothing. And the robber says, your money or your life? And Jack says, well, give me a second. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> it's a toss-up. Well, he, that was his joke about uh, he liked money a lot. Now, typically, nothing's more dear to us than our life. Now, it says in Revelation about overcoming the accuser, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Now, in Revelation, the issue was certainly was martyrdom, and the overcomers were being told that it was either their life or their faith. They either had to renounce Christ or die. Now, throughout history, Christians have refused to renounce Christ. The Romans knew that. They even, one Roman wrote to another Roman and said that they found that no true Christian will curse Christ. So if we force them to curse Christ and they're doing it, then we know they do it. We know they're not true Christians, so then we let them go. But they found that true Christians wouldn't do that. Now, so when Paul says that I do not hold my life as dear to myself, he wasn't setting himself up to be an elite um, Christian doing a work of super irrigation. It means above and beyond what's called. He's just setting himself up to be a Christian. So, why is the gospel more important to us as Christians than our own lives? Because this life is going to end. And the only, time, the only thing we don't know is when. Sooner or later, this life will end. But the eternal life that we've been given through the gospel is forever and ever. And that's why it's more important to us. So, he said several important things here. Repentance and faith, the gospel of grace, his life wasn't dear to himself. Then he says, verse 25, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, stop here. We just had our third parallel statement. Repentance and faith the gospel of grace, and the kingdom. These were three different, totally unrelated messages. They were all the same thing. What's this message of the kingdom that he was preaching? The terms of entrance, the keys to the kingdom. When we preach the gospel, we're using the keys of the kingdom. And we're also binding and loosing. And so the, the terms of entrance are the gospel. So that's why it's called the kingdom. So notice these parallel statements. That's a good, I hadn't thought of that before. I just thought of, seen that, Ryan, before this? That's very interesting. Because there are those people that say the gospel of the kingdom is different than the gospel. Have you run into them? It's, no, it's not true. <laughs> but there are people that say it's a different message, but it's not. Okay, now. So he's preaching the kingdom. I went about preaching the kingdom. will no longer see my face. Verse 26. Therefore, it testified to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Now, what was it that made Paul innocent of the blood of all men? That he had preached repentance and faith. 
the gospel of grace, the kingdom, all various facets and assets of the same of the same truth. Yes. Hold on. Hold on. Robert. You look at well. What's interesting is this, when you bring up the issue of kingdom and how that's related to the to repentance. What were the first things that Jesus and John the Baptist announced when they entered into this public sphere of announcing the kingdom? Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Because Amen. the kingdom is there, right. repentance is necessary, and the kingdom is it's a threat because the kingdom is of our God and of his Christ, and you either are grafted into this kingdom or, or made a constituent of this kingdom by grace through faith and repentance, or you're going to be crushed by this kingdom at the end of the age. So right. it's a threat, and repentance is necessary. This, those are the first things that Jesus and John said was repent. And th- these were the people who were unbelieving. It, it had nothing to do with, um, okay, well, you've already believed now Repentance is optional. No, it was essential from yeah. the word go. Mark Repent. 1, 14 and 15. Yeah, for the yes. kingdom of, of, of heaven, the kingdom of God. Those yeah. are so they're related also. in the Gospels and they're related in, in Acts. Yes, uh, Bill. It's really important to define what the kingdom is. Uh, we've got all sorts of uh, rival kingdoms and everybody's trying to get you into their kingdom. And if they say if you're not in their particular kingdom, you're not in the kingdom of God. So, um, I, you know, we, we need to yeah. define our terms. Absolutely, we need to define it. And, for example, when I was reading this postmodern emergent church material, they talk about the kingdom, but their idea is making this world a better place to live in, and that's how the kingdom comes. Uh, but, no, we believe that when the kingdom comes, all enemies of the kingdom will be destroyed by the king, Jesus. That's what makes it a threat. That's why we need to repent so that we'd be citizens. Yes, Kathy. Um, I have a question. Um, in light of authority, my mother one time came in on my into my bedroom, and at the time I was praising in the spirit, and my mother came in and she asked, "What are you doing?" And I was too scared to say anything, and eventually, in time. What happened was that I turned away from the faith because of what she said, because I was so angry at her. Well, but you're back in the faith now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's what happens. You know, when we serve God on His terms, then all of a sudden we're alienated even from our own family. Yes. Hold on. Here's the man. Um, I think it was interesting. Uh, you talked about Jack Benny and and your money or your life. And I think part of, uh, part of the obstacle of, of getting the gospel across to people is what the definition of life is. And the Bible over and over tells us what uh, true life is, uh, eternal life is, and that life is in Christ. It's not independent of Christ. And... You know, you talk of the kingdom, that's being in Christ, being, uh, experiencing His life. Uh, when we, when we get that distinction, uh, muddled or confused, then we start thinking of life, uh, in temporal terms. We start thinking of life in temporal success, temporal security, and you know, you can be talking to an unbeliever, uh, talking about life. He's got a completely different conception of what life is to him, right. what living life to the fullest is, with you know, experiencing pleasure and, and having his desires satisfied, and and being comfortable and and lacking conflict. And I think a lot of today's deception is this idea of life as a lack of conflict, where the Bible constantly tells us, no, that life is in Christ yeah. and uh, that we're going to have this conflict. We're going to have to fight this deception. And if you go back to the Garden of Eden, you see Eve believing the lie and losing life, losing eternal life that she had because she believed the lie and her definition 
of what life was became confused, became clouded, yeah. and led to the fall. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, that's a major theme in the Gospels. Jesus a lot of times said, what is a man's life and what would you give? One more verse and we've got to be done here in Acts 20. And we're talking about obeying leaders and what, what leaders are like. And Paul's giving his own ex- self as an example. And he says one more thing here. I'm innocent from the blood of all men. In other words, blood guiltiness would be having an accountability for somebody else's soul. Right? If you declare the terms of the covenant and they break it, that's their fault. But if you're the watchman like Ezekiel and you won't share the terms of the covenant, then, then you'd be blood guilty according to that passage. Now, here's what it says. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I'm innocent in the blood of all men. For, now here's why he was innocent, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Okay? So, that's revealed. The, we're not um, given the liberty of taking out things from the Bible that we don't like. And picking and choosing certain topics and ignoring other ones, we are required to teach to you the entire counsel of God, as it says in the King James. The whole counsel of God, the whole purpose of God is revealed from Genesis to Revelation. So, leaders give an account for the souls of the flock. And they are responsible to do the sort of things that Paul said here. Preach repentance and faith, the gospel of grace, the terms of the interests of the kingdom, and fill out for the believers, those who come by grace through faith, the whole counsel of God. And by so doing, godly elders will watch out for your soul. Not to the exclusion of the authority of Scripture and the priest of every believer, because if you have a bad leaders that don't look out for your soul, you're still responsible <laughs> to find the truth. You can't just say, well, this is the church I sat in, and so they're leading me to hell, so I'll just follow along. It's their fault. Yeah, you have to be Bereans and search the Scripture, even if Paul told you that. <laughs> even if an angel from heaven teaches a different gospel, don't listen to him. Much less a man. So, God bless you, and uh, we're going to be, I'm going to be back in Thessalonians again, uh, kind of a two-part thing from two weeks ago, and we'll be in 2 Thessalonians 1. So we'll see you upstairs at 1030.